So again, it's great to be here with each and every one of you, whether you're joining us at Greenbelt Online or if you're joining us in person for our watch parties at 839 Shefford Road. So it's great to be able to worship with each and every one of you. As part of our message today, we will be taking communion together. So if you are at home uh, with Greenbelt Online, grab um, some crackers, a, a piece of bread, some juice that you'll be able to participate with. Uh, if you're here in our church building on Sunday morning, we made available these little prepackaged uh, cups. You can grab those at the front door if you didn't get one when you came in. Just want to make sure... Oh, look at all the people scattering up to get it. Oh, I don't know how many people are gathered and getting up to get it. I'm on a video screen. <laughs> Again, so look forward to uh, taking communion with you in a few moments. Um, we are starting a brand new sermon series that's going to take us to the remainder of the summer. Um, maybe you're new here at Greenbelt Church and you're kind of trying to get a little bit of a feel of who we are as a church, particularly when it comes to the teaching ministry here. Well, something that you should know, uh, my heart is really about the Word of God and helping people to really make the Word of God not just sit in your brain, but actually work its way down into your heart and to go from your heart to move into your hands, into your feet. We don't just teach the Bible in such a way that it fills our heads up with knowledge, but then we do nothing with it. Right? I believe firmly that that's the ministry of Jesus, teaching in such a way that caused people to completely transform their lives. And as you and I live transformed lives, then we go out and we share the good news of Jesus everywhere that we go. So from time to time, we do what I call a topical series, which is like like at the movies or like the series that we're doing right now. Other times we do series where we go through an entire book of the Old Testament or the New Testament, uh, and we go through it kind of verse by verse and we unpack it that way. And we're going to be doing our next series like that as part of our fall launch. Uh, last spring, we went through the Gospel of Luke together that way, and we're going to continue that theme going through the book of Acts because those were the two books written by the Dr. Luke, and we got a good foundation of who Jesus is, and now we're going to look at what does this mean for us out in the world today through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to be studying the book of Acts. But today, to get us to that series in the book of Acts, we're starting a new topical series that I've called um, Healthy Habits. Maybe just by way of show of hands, again, if you're in uh, the building with us this morning or if you're joining us online, you can just type in yes, if this is true for you. How many of you have ever had to deal with an unexpected illness? You know, whether that was something very serious or even if it was something kind of minor that just seemed to come out of nowhere, at some point in all of our lives, we deal with unexpected illness. I remember probably one of the worst situations when that happened in my life. Uh, Danielle and I, we were newly engaged. We were planning our wedding. Uh, we were both heavily 
involved in some local uh, charitable organizations that helped to raise money and support for the Montreal Children's Hospital. I had a key leadership position in that organization. So I had a full-time job in computer consulting in this volunteer organization. I was also doing probably another 40 to 50 hours in that organization. We were planning a wedding and all the stress that comes from that. And at one of the meetings that I was at for this charitable organization I volunteered for, um, I had a heart attack. <laughs> now, I didn't actually have a heart attack, but I had, by all accounts, it, the way I was processing this was I was having a heart attack. I had never experienced anything like that before in my life. And this is going back 20 plus years ago. I might have been 25, 24, 25 years old when this happened. And I'm clutching my chest, huge arm pain, shooting up my left arm, feeling like I'm going to vomit, feeling like I'm going to pass out. And so my fiance, Danielle, brings me to the Ottawa, uh, the Montreal Hospital, and uh, we spend the next 24 hours in there doing test after test after test after test, trying to figure out what was wrong with my heart. Well, lo and behold, I, I wasn't having a heart attack. There was actually nothing wrong with my heart. My blood pressure was fantastic. My heart was incredibly healthy. My cholesterol was a little high for somebody my age. It's because I lived in Montreal and I had poots in every single day for lunch. <laughs> what I had was a full-on, full-blown panic attack that just expressed itself like a heart attack. Now, here's the thing about unexpected illness is for most of us, if we were really honest, for most of us, there were signs pointing to the big one that we went through, but we ignored those signs. Like if I think, in, again, in this situation in my own life, like what caused me to have a full-blown panic attack that expressed itself in chest pain and arm pain and nausea and shortness of breath and blacking out. Well, I was working too much. I was working too many hours in my job. I was doing 60 hours a week in my job as a computer consultant. I was doing 40 to 50 hours a week as a volunteer. I'm planning a wedding. I ate like garbage. I ate really bad. And I was young and skinny and I could eat anything and not gain any weight. Remember those days? <laughs> yeah. So I, there were a lot of signs already, but I chose to ignore them. And I think the same is true about our spiritual walk with the Lord. You see, you and I will not know that we have unhealthy habits in our spiritual walk with Jesus until the big one happens, until the crisis happens, until the, pro the major problem hits us, until you know, the crisis in our family, in our work, in our finances, in our health, even a crisis of faith. See, when those unexpected things hit us in our spiritual walk, that's when we realize we're not as healthy as we could have been. And that's the heart behind this series that we're going to be doing over the next five weeks, is I want us to talk about different topics when it comes to our spiritual walk with Jesus. Because the Bible has a lot to say about our walk with Jesus. And the apostles have a lot of amazing teaching that tell disciples of Jesus to examine yourself, to check yourself, 
to make sure that your faith is good. And it's far too easy just in the busyness of our lives to go through the motion of our Christian faith. And so I want us to do, take a good look at all of our lives personally and even corporately as a church family. How are we doing spiritually? Do we have healthy habits in our spiritual walk with Jesus? We're going to talk about you know, uh, topics like discipline and balance. We're going to talk about self-control. We're also going to be talking about you know, living a life of, you know, where it's persistent and consistency in our walks with, with the Lord. And today I want to start with a very timely and important topic. Um, I want to talk about dealing with frustrations. <laughs> dealing with frustrations. Now again, show of hands for those of you in the building and just type yes in the chat for those of you at Greenbelt Online. How many of you have been frustrated over at some point in the last 18 months? <laughs> I'm going to guess every single hand is up. I'm going to guess that every single person who is in the chat at Greenbelt Online typed yes. See, all of us at some point have been incredibly frustrated over the last 18 months. Whether it's masks or no masks or shutdown, open, businesses closed, schools closed, churches closed, vaccines, no vaccines, all the stuff on the news, conflicting messages, social media articles, all of these things, denominational leaders flip-flopping, changing their mind, all of these things that have been going on over the past 18 months have been very, very frustrating <laughs> And then the follow-up question that I have for you is this. Are you happy with the way you responded in your frustrations? And what I mean by that is, um, did you handle those frustrations the way a follower of Jesus should handle them? Now, I know none of us are going to be perfect all the time, but Jesus has a lot to model for us when it comes to dealing with frustration. And I get it. Over the past 18 months, in my basement working from home, you would not believe the levels of frustration that have found their way into my mind and into my heart. And so you and I, as followers of Jesus, got to be very mindful on how we deal with the frustrations that come in our lives. So I want to look at a passage from Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking at the example of Jesus himself. And just to set up um, what we're going to be reading here, uh, we're reading from Mark's gospel again, chapter 14, and this takes place right after the Lord's Supper. See, this happens on the night when Jesus was betrayed. Now, maybe you're new to church and you're new to the teachings of the Bible and you're not even too sure what that means. What that means was, is one of Jesus's followers, one of the 12 disciples decides to turn on Jesus. Someone who knew him the, very closely, who witnessed his miracles, who saw and, and heard his teaching, decided to turn on him. 
because, you know, the text doesn't really go into a lot of detail about why he turned on him. Is it because he wanted Jesus to rise up and to be king? Is it because Jesus was upsetting the religious leaders too much? There's a lot of speculation on this, but for whatever deep down heart issue Judas had, Judas decides to turn Jesus over to the religious authorities, the religious leaders who were furious with the teachings of Jesus. And they weren't furious with Jesus because he was teaching a message of love your neighbor. He wasn't, they weren't furious with Jesus because um, he was teaching a message of love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, he was teaching both of those messages. But ultimately, he was teaching to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. He was teaching those commandments out of his identity as God where he declared himself to be the I am. And they hated him for that. They wanted him dead for that. They wanted him executed for breaking their traditions like Sabbath keeping. They wanted him executed for blasphemy, for declaring himself to be God. And so Judas decides to betray Jesus, to turn him over. And so this happens right before Jesus gets arrested. So Judas has gone off to let the guards know where they could find Jesus. They are on their way to arrest him. He's going to be tried. He's going to be beaten and whipped and executed on a cross. And this is what, this is what happens right before those horrible events happen to Jesus on the cross. It happens in a place called Gethsemane. And so I'm going to read here from Mark chapter 14, and I'm going to start reading in verse 32. I would encourage you to follow along in your Bible as well. So here, chapter 14, verse 32, it says, So they went to a place called Gethsemane, they being the disciples and Jesus. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. So just kind of paint the scene a little bit. So here they're in this garden. It's a place called Gethsemane. Jesus is there with all of his disciples. They all come in. He tells the disciples, okay, everybody wait here. And then he goes further into the garden with Peter, James, and John. Now, Peter, James, and John, they're the disciples that Jesus is the closest with. They're part of his inner circle. They're the, the, the ones who witnessed Jesus' transfiguration, where they went up on this mountain with Jesus, and, and the, the whole glory of God descended on them. And they saw Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah, these huge prophets from the Old Testament. So he brings them further along, and, and, he, and Jesus opens up to them about how he's feeling overwhelmed with sorrow, and it's hitting him so hard. It's hitting him. It's like he's to the point of death, and he tells them to stay here and to keep watch. And so then Jesus goes a little bit further. It continues in verse 35, and it says, He fell to the ground, and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Now, in the Gospels, when the Gospels use the term the hour, when it says, my hour has not yet come, when it talks about the hour, 
It is talking about Jesus' passion. It's talking about the arrest, the crucifixion. It's talking about dying for the sins of humanity. Right? And so he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour, the death, would pass from him. And it continues in verse 36. It says, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so once more, he went back away and he prayed the same thing. So again, he prayed, Abba, Father, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me, but not my will, your will. Right? And then he comes back again, once more, when he came back in verse 40. He again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. And they did not know what to say to him. And returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And then Mark continues in his gospel with Judas showing up, leading the temple guards, bringing Jesus off before the Sanhedrin. Peter disowning Jesus, declaring he doesn't even know him when the crowds were kind of coming after Jesus. Jesus stands before Pilate, a Roman governor, and the governor says, I find no fault in this man. I find no reason to execute him. But because the mob came and they wanted Jesus dead, Pilate washed his hands of the responsibility of that. And he had Jesus flogged with a whip, kind of a five-stringed whip with bone and pieces of metal in it. And he was hit with that repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly ripping the flesh from his bones, his blood being spilt in the courtyard where this was happening. And then they took a wooden cross and they made him carry it. And then they nailed him to it. And then he died. See, this is what Jesus did for you and for me. Because the Bible teaches us that there is sin in every single human being. And sin must be paid for. And so humanity, for as long as humanity has been on the planet, has tried to create religious rules and traditions in order to please God. But the reality is, is there's no tradition, there's no rule, there's nothing that you and I can do to please God. But in that moment of prayer, there's sorrow, this weight of what was about to come took Jesus to the ground. One of the other gospels says he was so freaked out and nervous about this. That's a Kevin paraphrase, freaked out, that he was sweating drops of blood over this hour that's to come You can just imagine 
what Jesus is going through in this story here. These are, these are some of these passages where when I look at them and I try to put myself into the text, I try to imagine myself as Peter or as, as James, as John here. I try to imagine myself as one of these disciples. And I ask myself, would I be asleep? Would I be one of the ones that fell asleep? And then having Jesus keep coming back to me again and again and again, saying, Kevin, can't you even keep watch? Can't you just stay awake for another hour? Can't you just pray a little bit more? Right? Like, man, like this is, uh, it's kind of crazy here. Like when Mark specifies this in verse uh, 40, says, when Jesus came back the third time, so he came back, again he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. and They did not know what to say to him. You know, they fail, they let Jesus down, they're embarrassed, and you kind of wonder what's going on in the hearts of Jesus at that moment. Yes, Jesus is without sin, absolutely. But we kind of wonder here when Jesus is looking at them, when he's crying out to his closest friends, because life is difficult and it's about to get very hard for Jesus. See, and the reality is, is the world that you and I live in, life is very difficult. Even for those of us who we would say that we're incredibly blessed by the standards of the entire world, life still seems to have a way to hit us. Unexpected illnesses, dealing with different people, dealing with work situations, dealing with our finances, dealing with sin in our, in our own lives. There are so many external things and internal things that can be hitting us, that it can cause us to become incredibly frustrated with the world around us. It can cause us to become incredibly frustrated with Christians, incredibly frustrated with pastors, incredibly frustrated with my church, incredibly frustrated with my spouse, incredibly frustrated with my kids, incredibly frustrated with my boss. So many things can hit us. And can put into us this frustration. And what I want us to look for the remainder of our time together is I want to look at three things from this text here to look at the example of Jesus himself. How did Jesus deal with the most incredibly difficult thing he was ever going to deal with? (laughs) Jesus is about to deal with something that, praise be to God, you and I do not need to deal with. That we aren't going to be executed for our sin. But Jesus is going to be. And the Bible teaches that Jesus actually becomes sin. And he is separated from God the Father in that moment. And he is about to step into the hour, the most difficult thing imaginable. So what does he do? What do we see from his example that can help us? deal with these difficult things in life that hit us and how do we grow in them in such a way so that we can actually grow in them before the difficult thing happens because what i'm going to show you here is that jesus models for us this life long before we get to this part of the text 
So I encourage you to write these down if you're taking notes. Three quick things that I want to look at, and then I'm going to ask us each a couple of questions on how we, re- we respond to this. So the first thing is this. How did Jesus deal with this thing? Well, the first is um, this type of prayer that we see Jesus doing was a regular part of his life. This type of prayer that Jesus is doing here in the Garden of Gethsemane is a regular part of his life. In fact, when Judas goes off to betray Jesus, it says in John's gospel, in John 18, verse 12, it says this. It says, now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. See, this was such a common practice of Jesus and the disciples to go to this garden to pray that Judas knew where he would be. It was easy for him to betray him after he left the Lord's Supper when they were getting, when they got together at the upper room for the Lord's Supper, shared a last Passover meal together, and then Judas left. He knew where to go find him afterwards because this was a regular practice of Jesus to pray. Over 25 times, we see examples of Jesus praying in the Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four books of the Bible that we call the Gospel, over 25 times, we see examples of Jesus praying. Jesus prayed when he was alone. Jesus prayed in public. Jesus prayed before meals. Jesus prayed before making important decisions. Jesus prayed before healing. Jesus prayed after healing. Again and again and again, we see this as a regular, ordinary, dare I say it, almost mundane part of his ministry. You know, because so many people went to Jesus for the miraculous. You know, make more food. I want to see that again. You know, heal these sick people. I want to see that again. Do something really spectacular, Jesus. I want to see that again. But sometimes prayer in our Christian life doesn't seem all that spectacular. Somehow prayer some can become boring. It can become traditional. It could become, <laughs> in my own experience, it was actually used as a form of punishment. See, when I went to school, elementary school as a kid, and we had our teachers, the nuns, when you were bad, you were put into a corner and forced to pray as punishment. So what little kid growing up in that environment would ever want to pray? Prayer as punishment, prayer as boring, prayer as tradition, right? We see something very, very different in the life and ministry of Jesus. First, we see it as crucial in his relationship with God the Father. We see it as incredibly important to accomplish the will of God the Father. We see it as deep and intimate of Jesus talking to his Abba, to his Daddy. So much more than sometimes we make it into our own life. So that's kind of this first thing. If you want to be prepared for the frustrations of life, well, how are you praying long before those frustrations come? What's your prayer like life? Like, what is your prayer life like today while life is good? What is your prayer life like when things are normal? 
Job is good. Kids are good. Health is good. Everything's just normal right now. I think, sadly, too often we wait to the crisis. We wait to the huge, frustrating moment of life before we start praying. And so that's kind of this first thing here that we're reminded about of the example of Jesus is to look at and evaluate, is this type of prayer life a regular part of our lives? If we help us to deal with our frustration. The second thing that I think that we see from this text here to help us in dealing with the frustrations that you and I will um, be hit with is just simply a reminder. It's a reminder from the words of Jesus where Jesus says the flesh is weak. For me personally, that has been an incredibly powerful reminder over the last 18 months. You see, um, I've had a lot of frustration over the last 18 months. Now, um, most of you might find that surprising because you go, wow, I never would have guessed that because you're always so upbeat and you're always so positive. It's because I don't post my frustration on social media. (laughs) I don't blast my frustrations of certain things to the entire world. Because I look at the example of Jesus here, where Jesus takes his inner circle here, where he takes just a few people, where he takes Peter and James and John, and he pours out his heart to them, that he is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You see, our flesh is very, very weak. Our flesh has a way of taking frustration and flipping it and, um, and making it about kind of a pity party on us. We want people to know how frustrated we are. We want people to know how, how hurt I am. We want everybody to know, right? And that's not kind of the example we see of Jesus here. Because we have to be so on guard to feed what the flesh wants. All throughout the New Testament, the apostles teach of this battle that happens between the flesh and between the spirit. That the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans, where he talks about that there's this war that is waging within us. That the Holy Spirit in us, that is growing us, that is transforming us more into the image of God, the flesh fights against that. The flesh wants what the flesh wants. And so often, I think the way we deal with the frustrations of this world is we deal with them the way the flesh does. I just want everyone to know how hard I've been working. I want everyone to know how tough this has been on me. I want everybody to know. Right? That's the flesh crying out, look at me, look at me, have pity on me. <laughs> but is that what the Spirit is crying out for us. These words of Jesus for me are crucial. The flesh is weak. So we don't give into it. We have to grow into, we have to grow into trusting the spirit more and more in our lives. And then finally, another thing that we can see about Jesus's example here is a reminder about the power of God. A reminder 
about God's power. See, when Jesus prays his prayer here in verse 35, where he said, where he's kind of praying that the hour would be taken away from him, that this cup of suffering would be removed from him, right? Jesus says, everything is possible for you. Everything is possible for you. You see, everything that has happened in the last 18 months that has been incredibly frustrating for you and for I is not a big deal to God. All of the tensions, all of the frustrations, all of the anger, all of the things that we've been going through, God is still God. Everything is possible for God. So do we still hold that posture in our frustrations? And again, I don't know about you, but that's something that I need to be reminded of every single day, is that everything is possible for God. So when you and I are dealing with frustration, when the world's coming at us with all of these different things, again, whether in our health, whether in the pandemic, whether in business, whether our jobs, our education, our kids, what our marriage, whatever that might be, um, the big idea that I want to leave you with, and we're gonna, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and we're going to take communion together, is the big idea I want to leave you with is this. Um, in order to deal with your frustrations, we should have hearts that say, not my will, but your will be done. Whatever comes our way in this life, the little things, the big things that bring frustration into our hearts, you and I need to grow into a posture where our hearts can truly say, not my will, but your will be done. You see, that is a radically different posture. And this is why Jesus is not just simply our Lord. He's not just simply our Savior. He's our model for Christian living. See, the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to do his ministry is the exact same Holy Spirit that lives in you and me. That we don't deal with the frustrations of this world through our own strengths, through our flesh but we do them through the power of the Holy Spirit who knows the will of the Father. So we work on a posture of not my will, but your will be done. See, and that posture isn't a posture. I was just talking about this with one of our staff members this morning. I was sharing this big idea with them. And they're like, well, does that mean I could just throw in the towel and I could just sit at home, you know, and watch Netflix and bonbons and just not, you know, God, your will be done. That's not what it means, right? Knowing God's will is kind of a part of this process. We get to learn God's will through prayer, through the scriptures, through fellowship with other believers. All of these things that we do as a church family together to grow us, help us to develop a posture in our hearts of not my will, but your will be done. That's why here as a church family, our, our, our mission is all about leading people in knowing, living, and sharing Jesus. That's why we want you to know the scriptures. That's why we want you to have good, sound doctrine, but not just so you can fill your head, so that it will change your heart. It will change your life. 
how you live. And then ultimately, as your life is being transformed, as your life is being transformed, then you go out into the world and you share it. So again, if you were to think back of your frustrations over the past 18 months and how you've dealt with those things, how did you deal with those frustrations publicly? Did people see Jesus with this posture or did people see you? Oh, there goes Bob again. Oh, there goes Sue again. What do they see? So it's in those moments of life being good that we've got to work on these things, that we've got to make prayer a regular, powerful part of our lives. We need to realize that it's not through our flesh that we're going to respond and deal with these things, but we've got to trust that the Holy Spirit is working more and more in our lives. And we have to believe with every ounce of our being that nothing is too big for God to deal with. See, God's power and God's love is so incredibly big that Jesus died for you. See, that's why we take communion. Like, we don't take communion together as a, just simply this tradition um, that we do and, and doesn't really mean anything. We do it to remind ourselves. Like, we take communion to posture ourselves. To just take a moment out of a busy week to be reminded of the incredible love and power of God. That God's love for you is so great that Jesus was willing to go through this hour. That he was going to go to the cross for you. And that simply by believing in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that that sacrifice on the cross is what saves you from your sin that keeps you separated from God. When you believe that in your heart, you are made new. And this same power that empowers Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane comes in you and I. So that's why we take bread. And I encourage you to do that now. If you've got the bread with you or if you've got one of these cups with you in the building, just in the little cups, they can be a little tricky. There's a little kind of first piece of a plastic there that you pull off and you can pull out the wafer there. And so Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And we take this in memory of the broken body of Jesus because of his love for you and for I. Let's take this together. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took a cup filled with wine and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. A new covenant had come. What, what is a covenant? A covenant is a contract. It's an agreement between humanity and God. And this new covenant had come. That sin is being dealt with once and for all. That's why when John the Baptist saw Jesus kind of coming over a hill to get baptized, John the Baptist declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world that this spilt blood of Jesus was going to deal with sin once and for all. 
That's why when Jesus died, his very last words on the cross were, It is finished. Sin is paid for. So let's take this cup in remembrance of him. If you want to deal with the frustrations in your life, we should develop hearts that can truly say, not my will, but yours be done. I want to just leave you with two practical questions to think about this week. And I'd really encourage you to think deeply about these things. Because so much of our ministry here at Greenbelt Church is based around these answers. So much of what's going to be starting up after we finish this, this sermon series and all of our ministries that start back up again, whether in person or online, are all geared towards helping you grow in this. And so let, I want to ask these two questions here. First question is this. Is uh, who prays with you? Who prays with you? Again, I love this example of Jesus. Again, over 25 times we see Jesus praying in the Gospels, sometimes with crowds, sometimes just his followers, sometimes with just these three, uh, these three disciples, Peter, James, and John. But, but who prays with you? Who are the men and women in your life when things are good are praying for you? Who are the men and women in your life that when things are bad, they're praying for you? They know what's going on. <laughs> This is why our life group ministry is so incredibly crucial here as a church. Because as of today, in our church database, we have 774 people who call Greenbelt Church their home. I don't know what is going on in the lives of 774 people. If you're just hoping Pastor Kevin is praying for what's going on in your life, um, I do pray for you, but I kind of pray up here. Pretty generic, <laughs> 35,000 feet kind of prayer that I pray for our church. Who prays for you? Who goes with you to the garden? Who's keeping watch for you? Who are you praying with? That's why our life groups are crucial, because we want every single person to be known by somebody. We want every single person to be prayed for at this kind of level. That's why it's so important that someone is praying for you and that you're also praying for someone else. You see, in my life, what's gotten me through um, the past 18 months is the few people who know really what's going on in my heart. People like my wife, people like the elders, people like my closest friends, some pastor friends that I'm really close with. I'm part of a pastor small group. We meet once every month, month and a half to pray together because you need to deal with these things. We need to deal with the frustrations. We need to deal with the flesh. We need to trust in the power of God who prays with you. You should be able to write a name. And if you can't write a name, well, then you need to write down on your piece of paper, I'm going to join a life group in September so that you can meet people who will pray with you at that level. And then finally, the second question to ask yourself is, how do you learn God's will for your life? How do you learn God's will for your life? 
Again, so often, I think we look to the flesh, we look to culture, we look at different things in the world, and we assume our lives are supposed to measure up by flesh standards, by worldly standards. Um, but we forget to measure our lives by the teachings of Jesus, by the teachings of the Gospels, the teachings of the, the Bible. You know, when Jesus says, in this world, we'll have many troubles. And then when trouble comes, well then um, you need to learn God's will within the trouble. Because Jesus never promised a removal of trouble. Jesus promised his close presence with you during the troubles. So how do you discern God's will? Well, again, for me, as an example, and from the, some of the examples we see throughout the New Testament, is uh, don't just go to God in prayer for what you want. If your prayer time is nothing but a list of things that you want from God, you're missing out on probably one of the most intimate parts of prayer. Uh, I went through, and well, we went through this as a church a number of years ago. We went through a curriculum called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And I just dug out that little book again, kind of this day-by-day daily office book where there's two prayers or three prayers that you do a day, different times during the day. And just spending two minutes of complete, total silence in the presence of God with no lists, no demands, no petitions, but just to meet in stillness with God and give God an opportunity to speak. Let God tell me what his will does, because I've got great and wonderful plans for my life. I've got great and wonderful plans for this church, (laughs) but I want God's will to be done in my life. I want God's will to be done in this church. So who prays with you? Are you listening for God's will for your life? Because if you want to deal with frustration, we need to grow and have a heart like Jesus here that says, not my will, but your will be done. And I believe when you get that kind of heart, you'll start um, experiencing what Jesus talks about in John chapter 16. And these are the words of Jesus here. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus brings us peace. And the frustrations that try to hit us, they don't sink into the heart anymore because our hearts have been transformed by the love of God. Let's pray. Lord God, I praise you and thank you for the example and the model of Jesus who went through something so horrible and he went through crucifixion because of his love for us and so God I just pray for us as a church family that whatever the world would try to throw at us that um, we would respond through the power of the Holy Spirit and not respond by our flesh that when we have trouble we can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world we can find peace in our hearts trusting in the power of God at work in our lives and Father ultimately I pray that as we deal with those frustrations that the people around us our friends, our family, our colleagues at work they would see Jesus in us and not for our glory not to put us on a pedestal but so that you, God, would be glorified and that these people who see Jesus in us would then put their faith in Jesus as well. So, Father, as we continue to worship today, 
I pray that you would just be glorified by our worship and speak Holy Spirit to each of our hearts as we are reminded today of your will and that your will would be done in our lives. Let's pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.